scratch and smooth. I wish I was back in Liverpool, Liverpool town where I was born, where there ain't no trees, no scented breeze, no fields of waving corn, but there's lots of girls with peroxide curls and the black and tan flows free. There's six in a bed by the old pierhead, and it's Liverpool town for me. Hello and welcome to SNS Online. Well, much has changed in Liverpool over the years, but one thing that clearly hasn't is the city's love affair with music. And nowhere typifies this more than a small cave-like underground club, previously a cellar on Matthew Street called The Cavern Club which incidentally has just celebrated its 60th birthday. And it's no small achievement that the Cavern and the subsequent bands that played there really caught the zeitgeist of the period. To mark this amazing milestone, SNS speak to one of the Cavern's previous owners, Debbie Greenberg, who, with her father, Alf Gagan, successfully ran the club during those significant glory days of the 1960s. Debbie's also written a brand new book to help celebrate the Cavern's latest milestone, Cavern Club, The Inside Story. So let's go back in time now to meet Debbie and her husband, Nigel, looking back and lifting the lid on The Cavern Club. Where's the most famous number 10 in the world? Downing Street? Not on your Nelly, say Liverpudlians. It's 10 Matthew Street, the address of The Cavern, where the Beatles took the pop world by storm. Today's session at The Cavern, we proudly present The Beatles! The music was uh, so dynamic and so exciting. It was, it was a real buzz. It was a, it was a real drug, you know, a feel-good drug. The front row seats in the cavern, you could reach out and touch the artists on stage. It was that close, it was that intimate, it was that friendly. Dad came to me and said, I've got the chance of buying the cavern, what do you think? Well, you know, <laughs> give a child a key to a, a sweet shop. And I was in the crowds in front of the stage waiting for... Um, Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, to make the official opening. We'd had word that, that this wonderful group were coming to the cavern, so I wanted to see it. I have to put my hand up, I've skipped school for that. Great acts uh, like Benny King, Stevie Wonder played here, Rod Stewart. You know, in recent years we've had uh, Adele headlining. It's a magnet. Anybody who is anybody in the music industry uh, wants to play the cavern. So Debbie and Nigel, welcome to the show. It's an absolute honour, and not only to be speaking to you today, but to be speaking to you in the cavern itself. I mean, the word iconic is bandied about far too much these days, but surely the cavern invented the word iconic. Yeah, indeed it did. <laughs> it was born here. So Debbie, let's take it back to the beginning. Obviously, you've written a wonderful page-turner called Cavern Club, The Inside Story, which I just finished last night. I was so in the moment reading that, as if events were unfolding at the time. Um, it's a wonderful read. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Your, 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 your first book? I have written fictional novels, but uh, I haven't had anything 
done with them yet. Okay. Well, I'm sure it's only a matter of time because <laughs> you, your family seem to be uh, conquering Liverpool. So tell us about the days when you used to go to the cabin before you owned it. I mean, what was the buzz like? Was there a real feeling that there was change happening in the world? Yes, um, there was. It, when the rock and roll started to uh, come into the, the, the scene, um, it was very slow to begin with because the cabin owners didn't want it. It was a jazz club and then a little bit of skiffle. And, but, but the, the kids, the, the visitors loved the rock and roll and they wanted it and the more they heard it, the more they wanted it. And um, then the groups started to appear and the Beatles were, were one of the, the finest groups, um, especially after they'd been to Hamburg where they'd really got their training over there. And when they came back, they were, they were really professional compared to a lot of the other groups that, that were coming through in Liverpool at the time. Mm. But it was such an exciting place to be. Um, it, it was a strange place in so much as the, it, it was uh, a smelly place because the, there was no uh, main drains. It was just a cesspit under the toilet. No air con? No air con. <laughs> oh, absolutely no air con. No ventilation, no fire escape. Um, it was... But it, and the condensation ran down the walls and the, no alcohol, just a little coffee bar with snacks and Coke and soup. Soup, I love the soup, it's so sweet. It's like directly from the war, there's Coke and soup. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, but, and it was always packed out, always. And the accessibility of the audience to the groups w w was amazing mm. because you could touch them almost, you know, they were and ask for requests and you could have humorous banter with them on stage. It was, it was a fabulous atmosphere, but the music was uh, so dynamic and so exciting. It was, it was a real buzz. It was a, it was a real drug, you know, a feel-good drug. Totally. And I would have thought after the Second World War, when you've had rationing coming out of every orifice and all the rest of it, just, just, just to finally feeling you're moving forward and having some joy in your, in your lives m m must have been... Uh, outstanding. Uh, were, you, were you part of this early scene coming to the cabin, Nigel? Yeah, well, I uh, started as an electronics engineer, and when um, in the early 60s the uh, pop groups started to appear in Liverpool, because uh, in the early 60s there were uh, reckoned to be over 300 pop groups in Liverpool. Now, they all needed amplifiers to plug their guitars into, and you could buy amplifiers from all the big music stores for about 80 pounds. Myself and a partner, we reckoned we could make them for about 40 pounds. Make so, them, well. So we um, started assembling them and we had a cabinet maker make the cases and we covered them in Rexine plastic coatings and they were very uh, well received. And uh, we soon got a name around the city for uh, making sound equipment. Um, so much so that in um, late 63 we were approached by, uh, Ray, by Ray McFall, who was the owner of the cavern, uh, and his uh, second-in-command, Bob Waller, the famous DJ, who introduced the Beatles on stage about three, four hundred times. Over yes, of course. Um, and they said, look, we've got the next-door cellar to the cavern. Um, it's derelict. Uh, we're thinking of uh, establishing a recording studio because all the groups want to make a demo disc and send it down to the big record companies in London hoping to get a, a record deal. So we uh, joined forces with them. We costed the uh, whole project out and we reckoned it would cost about £4,000, which doesn't sound much now, but oh. you, 
Yeah, for four thousand pounds, you could buy a beautiful house in the suburbs in the uh, in those days. So we uh, established the studio, and um, it was all fitted out with twin track recording equipment. And now recording studios <laughs> went on to thirty-two and sixty-four track. <laughs> but the um, the studio was uh, pretty basic, but it was high, very high quality, and um, we. Uh, re- recorded lots and lots of groups. Well, I've got to say, what a brilliant idea to have the cavern where people are being inspired by music, then thinking, oh, I'd like to do it myself. Oh, I've got, there's an opportunity. I can just go next door. What you have to remember is that uh, a group would come into the, re- into the studio, we'd record them on our very highly professional equipment. Uh, it would be uh, recorded on uh, quarter-inch recording tape. Uh, they were ten-and-a-half-inch reels, and... They used to cost an enormous amount of money. So a group would come in and book two hours, and in two hours they could record four or six songs, um, and then they'd decide which two they wanted to make into a, a, a demo disc with, you know, with an A-side and a B-side. Uh, and then we'd splice the tape together and record over it for the next session. So we'd, we'd have a group that maybe would um, go on to become quite uh, quite famous and, and, and to sell many songs and, and if only we'd have been able to keep these recordings uh, but then again hindsight's a wonderful thing so we, we established the studio and uh, for a couple of years we did very well and then the pop music started to fade a little bit but we were fortunate because and I'm sorry to uh, mention the opposition but <laughs> we, we, we were roped in in the nicest possible way by Radio Caroline <laughs> Serving the Boise Isles, 14 swinging hours a day, this is 199 Radio Caroline. Who had a ship uh, anchored off the um, Isle of Man. Uh, but they had a local production office in Liverpool, but they needed f- uh, recording facilities because quite often when the weather was very bad and the DJs couldn't get out onto the ship because the ship was three miles o- off the coast. Um, yes, of course. We used to record lots of programmes for them, so they'd always have a shelf full of tapes that they could put on when the DJs couldn't make it. And then we started making jingles for them. But then uh, what we didn't know was um, Ray McFall really, it was his last fling of the dice. He'd been not very diligent in the way he managed his finances, even though he was an accountant. (laughs) Uh, And uh, in 1966, February, we arrived at work one morning to find the place uh, sealed up. The bailiffs had put a seal on the door and we couldn't get in to get our equipment out. Yeah, wasn't there a, a, a possible issue that they could have taken your equipment, but not that they even belonged to them at all? Well, that's right, but uh, I think Ray McFall was a little bit desperate, and when the official receiver interviewed him and said, what are your assets? Well, he said, I've, you know, I've got my offices and uh, the studio downstairs. Mm. Uh, but he didn't um, think it prudent to tell him that he didn't own the equipment. It was a separate limited company. Mm. I actually had introduced all the finance to open the studio. Ray was supposed to have contributed 2000 but he just didn't have the money. So we um, couldn't get into the studio and the legendary doorman at the cavern, Patrick Delaney, or Paddy as everybody knew him, let us in through a sort of a secret back door. <laughs> I and, love this. Um, and from that day on, Bob Wooler, the famous DJ, uh, christened me Mr. Moonlight <laughs> for, for doing a moonlight flit. You got all your equipment out then? We got everything out and we re-established the studio about 200 yards away across the other side of Dale Street in another basement, Uh, continued working for Radio Caroline. But within 12 months, unfortunately, the government had 
closed down Radio Caroline, made it an offence to supply any services to them. So uh, we committed the cardinal business sin of having all our eggs in one basket. But then, of course, Radio Merseyside came up, the BBC. Well, the BBC came, they started in November 67, and in fact, Debbie's father, Alf, hosted the uh, the launch party on board a, a Mersey ferry, the Royal Daffodil, and um, Alf Gagan was the first non-BBC person to be interviewed uh, on the day. Scratch and sniff. Online! With Nick Randall. I used to be a cavern addict in the beginning and uh, I was at the cavernous every opportunity that the site could be and lunchtime sessions, evening sessions and then in 66 uh, the owner of the cavern, Ray McFall, uh, went bankrupt and the cavern, the lease went on the market and a friend of my dad's approached him, a friend called Joe Davey and he, he asked would he consider going in with him to buy the lease because he couldn't afford to buy it on his own and dad came to me and said I've got the chance of buying the cavern what do you think well you know (laughs) give a child a key to a sweet shop what does it say but I had a, a sensible head as well and I said look dad I've seen the cavern peak and I know it can do it again and I think you should go for it and we started negotiations and uh on April the 18th, it was actually when we got the keys to come down here to work. Now that's, we've just had that as a 50th anniversary, haven't we? That was um, earlier this year. Yes, well, the, the 50th anniversary of the actual reopening of the cavern was the 23rd of July. OK, right. Yeah. Yes, in 1966, when Harold Wilson reopened it for us. Yeah. Where's the most famous number 10 in the world? Downing Street? Not on your Nelly, say Liverpudlians. It's 10 Matthew Street, the address of The Cavern, where the Beatles took the pop world by storm. Others have since used it to make the Mersey sound stay world famous. A new look, super with it, extended cavern was being opened by the Premier. And in the crowd, as Bessie Braddock, the uncrowned Queen of Liverpool, escorted Harold Wilson, were Mrs. Wilson and her son Giles. Some time ago, the Prime Minister said he would open the new cavern, and here he was, in the cellar, where it all began. And the fact that you two people were working so closely but didn't actually get to know each other for about 15 years at all and now you're very happily married for, I don't know, how how many years? 32 years. 32, don't seem a day too long. (laughs) Quite honest with you, a very interesting story is um, I was invited to the reopening of the cabin by Bob Wooler and I was in the, uh, the crowds in front of the stage waiting for um, Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, to make the official opening. And he stepped forward to uh, the microphone to make the announcement. And all the cameramen from all over the world, as you can imagine, they all switched on their floodlights to uh, have some extra light. And um, the mains couldn't take it. The whole place was plunged into darkness. And um, Deb's dad came to the front of the stage and shouted out. He was, I think he was hoping to make an announcement over the microphone, but of course, no electricity, no microphones. And he shouted out, is there an electrician in the house? Well, <laughs> I put my hand up. I said, I know the electrics in this building. I'll get it on. And I cobbled together a replacement fuse just to get the um, proceedings going. And um, 
It wasn't until 15 years later when Debbie and I met on a blind date that she found out that it was me that had got the lights back on again. Some time ago, the Prime Minister said he would open the new cavern, and here he was, in the cellar, where it all began. Hello, says Jimmy Savile, voted top disc jockey last year. And hello to Ken Dodd. Mr Wilson said that even when the country's up against it, there's no reason to be gloomy. So cheers with the Mersey beat, pop in general, and the cavern in particular. Over now to those local idols, the hideaways. There are so many more. Rex Harrison was here. The, the, the Prime Minister was here. Well, that was on the opening day, of course. Um, we sent about two or 300 invitations out to uh, all the dignitaries, the VIPs, anybody that had a connection with Liverpool, anybody was from Liverpool, all, all the politicians, the comedians, the artists from cultural to pop, everybody that we could invite, we did invite, the football clubs, everybody. And uh, the cavern was absolutely bursting at the seams on the day. There's Harold Wilson opened it for us. And yes, Rex Harrison was here, um, and uh, Norman Rossington, um, who was the only one to be in a film with the Beatles and Elvis Presley. And uh, it was absolutely heaving. Look, that you, you couldn't move and, and of course that everybody arrived at what well, we had the top bar then in those days when you went down into the cavern proper you, you did get the heat but you also realised that it wasn't quite as a steam bath as it used to be when, when we had the, the old cavern um, Your dad did so many upgrades to, to really make it work and, and to make it you know a safe environment. Let's go through some of your dad's accomplishments. He, a butcher, a builder, a bookie, inventor, entertainer, um, diplomat, club owner, businessman, he uses motorcycle skills to help in the war effort, a painter, a sculptor, a writer of wrongs and from what I've read one of the nicest people on the planet. Have I got that right? Have I missed anything out? Uh, that's absolutely accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I mean, the fact that you didn't have a, a fire in the early days, and I mean, I just, just you know, you just have to count your blessings, really. Well, the, the Liverpool Corporation, of course, insisted that, that these uh, rules were adhered to before we could reopen the cavern. So we had to put a, a fire escape. We, we built a, a brand new eight foot wide staircase going down from the top bar into the cavern proper. Uh, we had to have big ventilation fans uh, in, in the, the bars and, and the toilets everywhere. And of course, new toilets on the first floor and, and connected to the main drains, which of course it wasn't in the first place. It was just a cesspit under the, and that's what the cocktail of smell was in the cavern. And you know, a couple of swift inhalations when we got down there originally, you know, you didn't notice it after that. The soup and the coke and the hot dogs took over after that. And the has, has anybody tried to sort of replicate this in this sort of a cavern aftershave or something? <laughs> Just every little nuance of sweat and grime and <laughs> deodorant. Well, it, it, it's, it's food for thought, I suppose. Well, I, I don't think it'd get past the health and safety. <laughs> Scratch and sniff. With Nick Randall. You're listening to a celebration of 60 years of the Cavern nightclub in Liverpool with today's special guests, Debbie and Nigel Greenberg. And for all Merseybeat fans, did you know that as Liverpool was a thriving seaport, many locals have access to rare American records, allowing the city's inhabitants a wide variety of influences, many of which were largely unheard of in much of the UK. 
I was actually around during the 1960s, don't you know? Not exactly swinging my pants, more pooing them, because I was just a little toddler at the time. Anyway, if you want to contact us about this or any other show, then please join our SNS, Facebook and Twitter pages. Past shows can be listened to again and downloaded for free by searching for SNS Online on SoundCloud. And you're also welcome to email us at snsonlineshow at gmail.com. I believe you saw the very first appearance of the Beatles at the Cavern, is that right? Tell us about what what you can remember about that day. I think it was the 9th of February, 61. Now that's good detail. (laughs) Yes, and it was a lunchtime session, and uh, I have to put my hand up, I've skipped school for that. (laughs) (gasps) Outrageous! <laughs> We'd had word that this wonderful group were coming to the cavern, so I wanted to see us, see the group. And uh, from that day on, I was hooked. I wanted to see them every time that they were on after that, and, and did for most of their appearances. And what was it about the Beatles that, uh, from the very first appearance, um, made them seem so different to anything else you'd seen before? What, what sort of elements were there? Th- their energy was infectious. It, it, it was palpable you, you know you, it, it was such a, a strong energy and it filled everybody with the same energy and you couldn't get enough of it and that the sound they made that they they had influences from Chuck Berry and little Richard and and this was all new f- for us at the cavern and it, it was so needed after after all the slow n- numbers that we'd been used to uh, f- for pop music and it was it was such a, such a good time. I'm just going to say, were a lot of parents quite sort of uh, concerned? Well, they were because uh, about nine months in, into me or 12 months into me visiting the cavern, my mother was bothered that I was down there so often, and she came with Dad, at the, waited at the top of Matthew Street in the car, <laughs> and wanted to see where I was coming from in this this den of iniquity, as she called it and went home, couldn't find me anywhere. My grandmother lived with us at the time, and mum came home said, there's no sign of Deb anywhere, we can't find her. And my grandmother said, no, well, you won't find her because she's in bed. (laughs) Like a good little girl. (laughs) Yeah, so you should have trusted her. Mm. So my mother never questioned me after that. Mm. She just realised that it was just somewhere that I adored going to and, and being there, you know. Absolutely. Nigel, you put your hand up to speak. So, so you're next in line, sir. <laughs> it was just to say that you have to remember that for people like us who grew up, we were teenagers in the late 50s, and uh, we'd been brought up on a diet of our parents' music. I mean, every house had a, either a record player or a, a, a radiogram um, with 78 uh, discs, and I was brought up on... Frankie Lane and Dickie Valentine and people like that. And so when 
Firstly, Elvis Presley came along in the, uh, in the mid-50s and then uh, gradually the groups of the 60s and the rock and roll. This was our music. This was something that was nothing to do with our parents. It was our own scene. They knew nothing about it. Although having said that, when uh, uh, I remember little Richard um, bringing out a version of Babyface and I was absolutely flabbergasted to hear my mother singing along to it. And I said, how do you know this? The, all the words of this new rock and roll song. She uh, said, that was written in the 30s <laughs> when I was a kid. It was a friendly place. Everybody knew everybody else. Uh, we knew the people behind the um, the snack bar. Thelma used to dish out the soup and the hot dogs. The young girl in the um, in the cloakroom was Priscilla White. Um, uh, what happened to her? <laughs> Never heard of her. Absolutely. <laughs> and the Beatles on stage, they were irreverent. They did their own thing. So many of the young pop groups that they'd been out and they'd been to um, uh, one of the local tailors and they'd got stage suits made and they used to step in, in sequence, like the shadows used to do, the shadow walk. Um, and it was very rehearsed. But the, the Beatles were, were very off the cuff. They often sang, they turned their backs on the audience. They joked with the kids in the front row. Uh, Debbie often used to sit very near the front and you could the front row seats in the cavern, you could reach out and touch the artists on the stage. It was that close, it was that intimate, it was that friendly. Um, but luckily before the Beatles got so big that they would be ripped to shreds if well, they were. Well, well, that's right. So please, Scratch and Smith. So not only were you a club owner in your time. You're also a fully trained butcher, ran a taxi business, you currently run the securities business, and you were a model as well, which of course I can see. Yes. <laughs> Sounds a lot, doesn't it? What did you do in your spare time? <laughs> what spare time? <laughs> I, um, I sort of drifted in and out of all these occupations because of my dad. Uh, my dad was a master butcher. And we had butcher shops when he had the opportunity to buy the cavern. And his dilemma was, who's going to look after the shops if I go headlong into buying the cavern? Because I won't have time to run them. And because I was also a master butcher at that stage, and uh, I had a good business head on my shoulders, I said, well, look, Dad, don't worry. I'll, I'll take over the shops. You start the cavern. We'll wind the butcher shops down, which we did over a year. And twice a week, I used to have to go to the abattoir and buy the meat, get up at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, but I'd been regularly with him, so I knew what I was doing and I knew what to look for, and they all knew me there. Um, were, were there many women butchers up at the time? I don't mean that in a sort of sexist way, I'm just, just curious. <laughs> not that I know of, no, not that I'm aware of anyway. So we saw this glamorous woman who's, who's part of a modelling world coming in, saying, right, I'm, uh, I'm going to cut up some carcasses today. <laughs> hey there, got a match? Of course, Ringo used to collect 
um, the meat from the butchers, didn't he? <laughs> he certainly did. His mum used to call to us on a Saturday morning about eight o'clock and put a ten shilling note on the counter and she'd say the usual Deb and the usual was half a leg of lamb and a quarter of boiled ham every week. <laughs> and then Richie, as I knew him, Richie Starkey, he'd just come to the door of the shop and he'd just, he, he wouldn't come in, he'd just stand there in, in the doorway and I'd have to say to him, have you come for your mum's meat, Rich? And he'd just nod and I'd hand him the meat and the change and off he'd go. And he, he was so, so shy. Oh, bless his concert. So being in the butcher shop in the morning and then being a model in the afternoon, that must have been quite confusing. You must have been rushing off and having lots of showers, otherwise it would have been not the best combination. No, it wasn't the best combination, but I had to make sure that I could have time to get home on the bus and have a shower and, and go on the modelling in the afternoon, and, and, and that was it. But mostly the, the modelling uh, sessions were in the morning, so I didn't have that to, to consider. It's a shame you weren't modelling a Lady Gaga meat dress, and then yeah. you would have been perfect. Ah, yes, wouldn't it just? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know Scylla Black at all when she was Priscilla? Well, only from handing the coats in to her, that's so when, when I say handing the coats in to her, we didn't actually hand our coats in. We wouldn't take our coats off mm. because it wasn't the done thing, but, but visitors did, you know. Why wasn't it done thing? Is it because you wore very cool coats oh, that look good? No, it was, a, it was a statement. It was a fashion thing. Well, that you just like you might leave any minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. No, it was just that every it was it was the thing to do. Everybody wore their coats, so you you know you'd be out of sync if you okay. if you took them off. So of course the Beatles had I don't know how many appearances in the cavern over a few years, and then obviously went really made the big time. But then Paul McCartney came back one day with uh, a girlfriend called Linda. Um, what happened then? Yes, he did. It was the 25th of October, 1968. Um, it was a Friday. I'd been to the hairdressers and came back. Dad was stocking the bar. Tourists were in and out. And he said, we've had a visitor. I said, oh, who is it? We all, always had visitors. It's Paul McCartney. Oh, I said, have I missed him? And he said, no, don't worry. He said he'd come back. You stay here. He said, you stop. You continue stocking the bar, put the champagne on ice. He said, I'm going to go over to Dale Street to buy a camera because, you know, I want to try and record something if I can when he comes back. So off he went, brought the photographer back with him because he had to give the photographer a ruse that he was photographing a, a group on stage which he managed called the Curiosity Shop who were rehearsing in the cavern at the time and the photographer said right I'll set all the apertures on the camera for the lighting now you know don't touch it it's ready to roll all you've got to do is press the button fine so the camera was sitting there ready the champagne was on ice we're on tenterhooks will he won't he come back he'd said to dad I'd like to come back in an hour's time if that's all right with you, Alf, because I've got Linda, my new girlfriend, in the car, and we're just taking a record player over to Ruth. Ruth was his stepsister, and she lived over the water, which is over the River Mersey on a place called the Wirral. And uh, he said, I'll be about an hour, so I'll pop back. So we, we weren't sure whether he would or he wouldn't, but however, he did. As soon as he came back, we closed the doors to stop the tourists coming in. 
and we went to open the champagne for him and Linda took over. I'll do that, I'm a good bartender. So she poured the champagne and Dad said, Paul, would you mind if we took a few photographs? He said, no, no, not at all. Because he had stipulated to Dad uh, the first time he came back, I'll come back on one condition that you don't bring the press in. So Dad said, you've got it. Absolutely. So these photographs, Paul realized, were for our use. And uh, he said, yes, you can take photographs, no problem. So Linda said, I'm a good photographer, I'll do that. So she picks up the camera, turns all the dials on the front of the camera. And my dad's face was a picture. (laughs) I, I could see him thinking, oh, that's Tony's. But, however, as we both know, she was an excellent photographer and uh, we couldn't wait to get the photographs developed after they'd been taken. But after we'd been in the top bar, we went down into the cavern proper and the curiosity shop were on stage and they fell silent when they saw Paul. He just waved his hand and said, all right, lads, and that they were stunned. There was a, a piano down the left-hand side of the, the cavern, the stage, um, outside the band room. And he went over to the piano, lifted the lid, and started to sing. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. Hey, it was as if it was happening in slow motion. It was. Was this a new song at the time? It was. It had been released in the August. Um, in the September, it had aired on uh, the David Frost show on the television. But at, this was the first public appearance that he'd made, and it was absolutely fantastic. It, it was just so surreal. But just to be there, I just, I just can't quite get over. I mean, obviously, you know, we try to interview extraordinary people, as we say on the show, but, but to know these people and to have experienced that, it's just fantastic. It was just incredible. And... You had goosebumps, you know, for forever afterwards. And every, I can't listen to Hey Jude without being transported back into the cavern that day. And then he got it, we went through the band room, up the few steps onto the stage, and joined the curiosity shop on, on the stage and got on the drums with them, started to play a, a couple of numbers with them. And then he, he had to leave with Linda. We gave him a, a cavern T-shirt, a red one with the cavern emblem on the front. And, uh, and off he went. The lads on the fruit exchange opposite the cavern were loading a flat wagon when they saw him coming out and that, that they shouted to him, get your ear, cook me carne. Well, 
Well, stories like that and so many more can be found in Debbie's brand new book based on her experiences called Cavern Club, The Inside Story. A top recommendation to all cavern buffs and available from all good bookshops and online outlets. The Liverpool kids have another cathedral, a cellar called The Cavern, where their new million-pound-a-year music started up. Be still, those of you who are middle-aged. Be silent, ye young addicts to the Mersey sound. This is the holy of holies of the age of beat. So let's talk about some of the amazing acts that have played in the cavern over the years. And you got to know so many of these people as well, uh, you know, professionally, personally, all the rest of it. Let's, uh, let's run through some of the amazing iconic acts. Iconic. <laughs> well, we, we had Chuck Berry on, yeah. um, who was a wonderful performer, but uh, Bob Wooler had a little bit of a, an incident, not an incident, but a little bit of a, a thing with him in Matthew Street because it was pouring with rain the day Chuck Berry was supposed to appear, and did appear, and he wanted paying before he went on stage. Now, Bob didn't have the funds on him. All we had in the club was petty cash and, and floats for the bar, and he kept Bob standing in the rain while he sat in his chauffeured limousine. Poor Bob was standing, getting drenched, and he said, I'm not coming on until I, you know, I've had the money to appear. So he rustled the money together and he went on, and of course he brought the house down. On another occasion we had status quo here, and uh, they were amazing. The joint was jumping when they were on. And even the, the, the big amplifiers, they had Vox amplifiers stacked on the stage, one on top of the other. They were wriggling around all over the place. They just pushed their leg out and kicked them back into position and, and the way they went. And it, that was a fabulous night. had Queen as well, very early days. We did, we had Queen. Um, Ken Testy, who, who was a friend of Dad's, uh, he ran the St. Helens College, and he rang Dad and said, um, I've got this group coming up, Alf, called Ibex. Um, well, they used to be called Ibex, and we'd had them on the cavern as Ibex in, in prior to this. And he said, now, I need another gig for them. It won't be worth their while to just come up and play the college. So would you double up for me and have them on the cavern tonight? So Dad said, yes, of course I will, you know. So that was the first appearance as Queen on the cavern, and that was in 1970. Um, but yes, they were amazing. Any highlights of... Um, for you, Nigel, in terms of um, acts that are on, apart from the obvious ones? Well, there were great acts uh, like Benny King, the very famous American singer. He played a few times. He played uh, um, early in the 60s and, and, and then later on in the 60s. So darling, darling, stand by me Oh, stand by me Oh, stand Stand by me Stevie Wonder played here. Wow! Rod Stewart, a 
have played here in various formats, in various bands. In later years, Oasis played, this was after um, my time. In recent years, we've had uh, Adele headlining. Paul McCartney did his uh, Millennium appearance here. It's a magnet. Anybody who is anybody in the music industry uh, wants to play the cavern. Thank you. See you next time. Well, we're almost at the end of this special show, celebrating 60 years of a cavern. Who would have thought it? And just a reminder that a bite-sized companion show to this is also available on the SNS Online SoundCloud page called Little Girl Bells of Christmas, all about a song Debbie's father wrote for her 50 years ago that has been brought alive again by musician Michael Armstrong. Ring the bells for Christmas So, Debbie and Nigel, thank you so much for allowing me into the cavern today to talk about 60 Years of a Cavern and, and your fantastic book. So it only remains for me to uh, give you a bumper-packed celebrity goodie bag, um, because there's two of you. Thank you so much, Nick. Cheers, it's been our pleasure. It's just been wonderful, thanks so much. Rise up at the crack of dawn, working hard the whole week long. Stepping off 